ready. I'll turn it right over to Lloyd. Leading up to Easter, we'll begin looking at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today we will focus on Jesus' death. Jesus is bent over and covered in his own blood. About a hundred pounds of wood strapped across his shoulders. The weight of the rough beam is too much as it grinds against the wounds left by the Roman scourging. Pain explodes in Jesus' brain. He crumbles under the crossbeam. When he regains consciousness, Jesus feels somehow the weight lifted. The rough wood beam had been cut from his back, and another man is carrying it now. He's a dark man, but Jesus can't see his face. Another face is seen. Mercifully, a Roman centurion bends down and takes Jesus' arm and lifts him gently to his feet. Jesus catches and holds captive the gaze of the soldier. The victim's eyes don't pierce the centurion with the hatred expected. Instead, the soldier finds love mingled with pain, broken-hearted love, but love just the same. This love came before the existence of the world. Somehow the centurion senses those that these eyes are of eternal love. Jesus holds the eye contact as long as he can. But the blood that dripped from the ends of his hair to the ground when he was bent low under the cross now drips into his eyes. Blood mixed with sweat stings and Jesus blinks. By this time, Jesus recognizes that sting, but it was a new sensation just a little while ago in the garden. There in the garden, he walked with his friends, singing hymns and speaking quietly. They passed through the city gate and walked up the hill to Gethsemane. As the group made their way through the olive trees, there were only 11 friends with Jesus by now. One of the 12 chosen had become no friend at all. Satan already held Judas, the betrayer, by the hand then. And now, he had him by the throat. Judas hangs pale and gasping swinging from the end of his belt under the limb of a tree. The flames of hell are already lapping at his feet. It would have been better if he had never been born. Eleven were left, but soon there would be none. Not one friend or follower would remain. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. One would run terrified out of the garden, stark naked, and the rest would follow. Jesus fell on his face in prayer. He tasted the dirt as he fought for the eternal destinies of his 11 sleeping sheep, just a stone's throw away. Let this cup pass, he cried. If possible, let this cup pass. The father glanced at his son. The son stared back knowingly. Not my will, but yours be done. The father held out the cup, and Jesus took a peek inside. What he saw there threw him into agony. 
that was to come. He pressed his forehead into the dirt, which softened into mud when mixed with the tears that had been flowing. Jesus felt several small explosions of pain underneath the skin, first in his face and then over much of the rest of his body. His tiny capillaries in the sweat glands burst under the stress, and blood flowed through his pores. It dropped into his eyes and stung. Jesus lifted his head to the sky and cried out, I will partake of this cup. I will drink from this cup so that your glory will be made known and that my name may be glorified as well. So that the sheep you have given me will see your glory and enjoy. I will drink for the sake of our rescue mission. Just then, through blurred eyes, Jesus saw the line of torches slithering like a snake up the hill to the garden. The mob arrived. Judas kissed. Friends ran. Soldiers arrested. And Jesus' world became one of torment and mockery. The trial was all fake. Liars lied and mockers mocked. God claimed to be God and it was called blasphemy. The face that Moses longed to see, the face that he was forbidden to see, was now slapped and spit on. More blood in the eyes, more stinging. As he was dragged from the high priest's house, Jesus managed a bloody-eyed glance at Peter. This friend ran from the garden, but now was following. This friend had done the unthinkable three times. This friend denied the friend of friends. This friend had done, he had also denied the friend of sinners. The denial occurred, the cock crowed, and Jesus held him in the gaze once again of eternal love. But Peter looked away and ran. Just outside the gate, just outside that city gate, Peter stumbled and fell to the ground with heaving sobs and considered joining Judas on his tree but instead pleaded for the forgiveness of the father instead. And the father looked ahead to the afternoon, to what was about to take place. And because of what he saw there, he granted Peter the forgiveness he requested. The governor of Judea was up early this cold gray morning. The city was still asleep as the priests and soldiers led Jesus to the palace of Pontius Pilate. Soon the priests would have a sympathetic crowd as as news of Jesus' arrest passed from house to house. They leveled their charges. This man forbids us to pay tribute to Caesar, and he calls himself a king. Pilate stared intently again at Jesus. He questioned him and found no guilt. Neither did Herod. So Pilate offered to release Jesus to the growing crowd. They chose freedom for a murderer named Barabbas instead. Then what should I do with this Jesus of Nazareth? Pilate shouted to the mob, and the mob thundered back. Crucify him. Crucify him. Their voices prevailed. Pilate washed his hands and delivered the innocent one to death. Now Jesus was stripped, and his hands tied to a post. A large and ruthless Roman legionnaire stepped toward Jesus, playing with a short whip. Several heavy leather thongs hung off the handle, weighed down by small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. 
The muscles in the legionnaire's back and arms bulged as he brought down the heavy whip with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. The Jews would have been more merciful, no more than 39 lashes. The Romans extended no such mercy. The lead and bone left deep bruises at first, then with multiple blows would break the skin. The leather thongs would leave abrasions to start with, but with seemingly endless lashing would tear into the skin and tissue. Jesus was no longer recognizable, his face swollen and bruised, back and torso ripped and torn. Fearing they had gone too far and killed Jesus before it was time, the soldiers cut him loose. He fell in an unconscious heap at their feet. As consciousness returned, Jesus was forced to stand. A purple robe, not his own, was wrapped around him and clung to his open wounds. They handed him a reed, a mock scepter. Now, the king of the Jews needed a crown. So one of the Romans cut some branches from the hedge around the courtyard. He braided it into a circle several times, cursing the thorns when they would cut into his rough hands as he twisted them together. Never did thorns compose. So rich a crown. So painful a crown. Another soldier ripped the mock scepter from Jesus' hand and beat the crown onto his head. Bloody sweat blinded him. The extreme pain of the puncture wounds into his head for a few moments took the attention off of his throbbing back. Then the purple robe was torn from Jesus' back. The open wounds that had been adhering to the cloth were reopened with the removal of the purple. Each wound had a voice to shriek its pain. Jesus passed out once again. The blinking to alleviate the stinging in his eyes brought him back to the long road. Before the merciful centurion could move Jesus along behind the dark man now carrying the cross, an old woman approaches and wipes Jesus' swollen face with a linen cloth. Jesus looks into her eyes and then looks to the crowd of weeping women behind her. He says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Beyond the city gates now, it's about nine in the morning, and Jesus glances through the light rain at the rocky hill just ahead. Its name, Golgotha, the skull. At the top, he sees several posts fixed into the ground. Three of these posts stand ready to receive their crossbeams and the bodies of their victims. The other two criminals carrying their beams follow along behind Jesus and the dark men carrying Jesus' crossbeam. Once they make it to the top of the hill, the merciful centurion hands Jesus a cup. Jesus sniffs the liquid. It's wine mixed with myrrh, a mild narcotic to dull the pain. But Jesus refuses. He knows that the pain needs to be felt. He hands the cup back. This is not the Father's cup. Three soldiers strip Jesus again. His back is set on fire as his clothing is torn from his his clotting back. Jesus lays near naked in the dirt. Dark man places the crossbeam at Jesus' head. This time Jesus sees his face. It is Simon of Cyrene. Jesus knows him by name and did before there was time. 
The beam becomes his pillow now. Two men take hold of his hands. The soldier on his left yanks his arm as far as it will go. The soldier to his right is more gentle. And Jesus turns to him. It is the merciful centurion again. He picks up the cold spike and and places it on Jesus' wrist. Then he picks up the hammer. Their eyes meet. Eternal love shines through again. And the centurion is undone. He looks away and lifts the hammer. In that moment, Jesus hears his own word of power. The word of power that holds the merciful centurion in existence. The word of power that causes the hammer to be. He's speaking it all into being now. The soldiers, the priests, the thieves, the friends, the mothers, the brothers, the mob, the wooden beams, the spikes, the thorns, the ground beneath him, the dark clouds gathering above. If he ceases to speak, they will all cease to be. But he wills that they remain. The soldiers live on and the hammers come crashing down. Jesus is lifted onto the cross beam to the post. He sags, held only by the spikes in his wrists. Jesus designed this median nerve in his arms that is now working perfectly in each of his arms. The pain shoots up those nerves and explodes in his skull as the cross beam is set in place. His left foot is now pressed against his right. Both are extended, toes down, knees slightly bent. A spike is driven through the arch of each. Jesus immediately pushes himself up to relieve the pain in his outstretched arms. But in doing so, places full weight on the spike in his feet, which tear through the nerves between the bones in his feet. Splinters from the post pierce his already shredded back, searing agony. Soon to follow are waves of cramps, overtaking deep pain from his head to his toes. He's, he's no longer able to push himself up and his knees buckle. He's hanging again by his arms. His pectoral muscles are paralyzed and his intercostals are useless. Jesus can inhale, but he can't exhale. His heart is compressed by the fluid building up around it. He's struggling. It's struggling to pump blood to his torn tissue. He fights to raise himself in order to breathe and to speak. He looks down at the soldiers now gambling for his clothes. He pushes himself through the, up through the violent pain to pray out loud, Father. Forgive them, for they don't know what they do. He sags again to silence. The crowd is not silent, however. He saved others. Let him save himself. If you're the Christ, come down off that cross. Save yourself, King of the Jews. The criminal on the cross to his left joins in the mockery. The thief to his right. Repents. Jesus pushes himself up again to say, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's almost noon now. The drizzle starts to turn to a light rain. The clouds continue to darken. And Jesus looks down through the wet strands of hair into a familiar face of a woman. A new pain grabs him, greater pain than all the whips and spikes in the Roman kingdom. It's his mother. She's sobbing so hard, her breathing seems almost as labored as his. Without words, she looks into his eyes and begs 
to know why. He longs to hold her and to tell her that it's all for her. He pushes upward and says, woman, he is now your son. And to John, he says, she is now your mother. At this point, sinks back into several more hours of limitless pain. Then Jesus started. He's startled by a foul odor. It isn't the stench of open wounds. It is something else. And it's all around, and it feels as if it's getting inside of him. He looks up to his father, and his father looks back. Jesus doesn't recognize these eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky. Jesus suddenly feels dirty. He hangs between heaven and earth, filthy with Roman abuse, and now, on the inside, filthy with human wickedness. The father begins to speak into him. Son of man, why have you sinned against me and heaped scorn on my great glory? You are self-sufficient and self-righteous, consumed with yourself and puffed up, selfishly ambitious. You rob me of my glory and worship what's inside of you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You are greedy, lazy, gluttonous, slanderer and gossip. You are lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality. You make pornography and fill your mind with every vulgarity. You exchange my truth for a lie and worship the creature instead of the creator. So you are given up to your own homosexual passions, dressing immodestly and lusting after what is forbidden. With all your heart, you love perverse pleasure. You hate your brother and murder him with bullets of anger fired from your own heart. You kill babies for your own convenience. You oppress the poor and deal in slaves and ignore the needy. You persecute my people. You love money and prestige and honor. You put on a mask of outward outward righteousness, but inside you are filled with dead men's bones. You hypocrite. You are lukewarm and easily enticed by the world. You covet, and you can't have, so you steal and murder to get. You are filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You blame others for your own sin and are too proud to even call it sin. You're never slow to speak. Your tongue is like a razor blade lashing and cutting with every criticism and sinful judgment. Your words do not give grace. Instead, your mouth is a hydrant of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You're a false prophet leading people astray. You mock your parents. You have no self-control. You're a betrayer who stirs up division and trouble among family. You're a drunkard and a thief. You're an anxious coward. You do not trust me. You blaspheme against me. You're an unsubmissive wife. You're a lazy, disengaged husband. You file for divorce and crush the parable of my love for the church. You're a pimp, a drug dealer. You practice divination and worship demons. The list of your sins goes on and on. I hate the things inside of you. I'm filled with disgust for you. And my anger for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He downs every drop of scalding liquid 
of God's own hatred for sin mingled with the white hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. Righteous indignation directed at one beaten man hanging on a cross. The father can no longer look at his beloved son. His heart's treasure, the mere image of himself. And he diverts his gaze. Jesus pushes himself upward and howls to heaven, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. Separation. Jesus whispers, I'm thirsty, and he sags again. The merciful centurion soaks a sponge in sour wine and lifts it on a reed to Jesus' lips. He sips, then pushes himself up again and cries, It is finished. And it is. Every sin of every child of God has been laid on Jesus, and he drank the cup of God's wrath dry. It's six o'clock, and Jesus finds one more surge of strength. He presses his torn feet against the spikes, straightens his leg, his legs, and with one last gasp of air, cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. The merciful centurion sees Jesus' body fall far forward and his head drop low. He thrusts a spear up inside Jesus, just behind his ribs. One more piercing for our transgression. And water and blood flow out of Jesus' broken heart. In that moment, the ground began to shake. Rocks were split in two. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The merciful centurion looks up the lifeless body of Jesus and is filled with awe. He drops to his knees, declares truly, this man was the Son of God. Mission accomplished. Sacrifice accepted. Each and every person here is a participant in these events. It's not just a movie. It's not just a theatrical play. It's what Jesus Christ went through on the cross for your salvation and for mine. Let's take a few moments to silence all that is going on in our world and think about what God did for us in sending his son to die in our place. When you are ready, make your way to the emblems. Two tables here on either side, one in the back of the room. These emblems represent his broken body and the blood that was shed for you and I. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you so much 
for what you did for us in sending your son to die on the cross. As we partake today, let us think about, visualize, and understand more fully what it is that you did for us. God, I pray that we'll partake in a worthy manner. I pray that you'll bless us as we do. Pray these things in Jesus' name.
example is he The word became flesh And the light shined among us His glory revealed Living he loved me And dying he saved me Buried he carried My sins far away Rising in justified Freely forever One day he's coming A glorious day A glorious day And one day they led him On Calvary's mountain One day they nailed him To die on a tree Suffering anguish Despised and rejected Bearing us in my Redeemer is He His hands at Him nations Stretched out on a tree He took the nails for me And living in love me Dying He saved me Buried He carried Sins far away And rising in justified Freely forever, one day is coming. Glorious day, a glorious day. And living, he loved me, dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried, sins far away. Rising, he justified, freely forever. One day is coming, a glorious day, a glorious day, what a glorious day. One day they let him, one day they let him, Calvary's mountain, one day they nailed him to die on a tree. The reality grips me. I can't hear the story. I can't listen to the story. I can't hear. I can't think about it without it holding on to me. The death of Christ means so much. Death is a funny thing. It's a it's a, a big part of life, really. Uh, but it is what it is. There's many phrases for death, right? Well, a lot of times we don't say, well, that's, you know, grandma, grandma died. Well, we say it in different ways, don't we? Sometimes you say, well, she passed away. Maybe we use other terms like kick the bucket or to fall off one's perch. Um, maybe give up the ghost or maybe it's even bought the farm. Maybe it's uh, he went to meet his maker or... He's, or she's, pushing up daisies. How about becoming worm food? That long dirt nap. How about this one? To wear a pine overcoat. Maybe they just wanted to assume room temperature. Maybe they bite the dust, cash in your chips, take the cat, 
to head to the happy hunting ground. All of these phrases, somewhat humorous at times, try to shed light on this thing that we'll all experience someday and that Jesus experienced for us. The death of Jesus Christ means so much to us as Christians. From the beginning of, of from the beginning, the very beginning of time, death really wasn't even a thing. Adam and Eve were created to last forever. Then sin entered the scene. With sin brought death. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. When Adam and Eve sinned, they experienced the reality of death. They began to die in two different ways. One, they began to die physically. Adam and Eve, their body began to experience physical death. They lived a long time because God had everything dialed in just right. It doesn't last that long these days. They also began to die spiritually. They were fearful. They ran and hid. They separated themselves from God. It's what sin does. Anytime a person sins, they separate themselves from God. You drive a wedge between you and God when we sin. John chapter 12 and verse 24 it says, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What do you think Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about death. Jesus' death provides many things for us. And when I hear the story, when I think about what the story has to, has to offer, there's lots of questions that pop up in my head. What questions pop into your head? What doubts does Satan put in your heart and mind when you hear the story? When you hear what truly took place at Golgotha? What was the purpose of Christ's death? Why did he have to die? Who benefited from his death? What was the point? Why was there, what was there some sort of beneficiary of, of this death? Why did blood have to be shed? Why is it that a life of an innocent person was what it took to redeem all of us? Well, let's try to answer those questions. We're just going to basically do it with Scripture in the next few minutes. Sin left a stench. That's why Christ had to die. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 says, Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Most of you are probably fairly clean this morning. There's not too much stench from your physical body this morning, right? Sin stinks to God. And when we want to be in the presence of an almighty God, we can't stink 
And so Christ's death provided the sacrifice, the pleasing aroma to God. God fixed the smell of sin with his perfect sacrifice. We make messes and God wants a fix. Look at Romans chapter 3. I want you to write all these passages of scripture down because there's going to be time in, in your life, in your Christian relationship, in your relationship with God, that you are going to doubt why Christ died and what the purpose was and why it was that he did what he did and what's the point of all this? Why did God design it all this way? These passages of scripture, you can go back to them. There's going to be also some on your, on your discussion sheets in just a few minutes. Hold on to these passages of Scripture so that you can go back to them and try to more fully understand it. I'm just going to give you a a blip into the Scriptures about this. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21, it says, But in our time, something new had to be added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed all these years, all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but everyone who believes in Him. For there is no difference between us and them in this. Since we've compiled this long and sorry record of sins, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living a glorious life God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, He put us in right standing with Himself. A pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin. Having faith in him sets us clear. God decided on this course of action in full view of the public to set the world in the, in the clear with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus. Finally, taking care of the sins he had so patiently endured. This is not only clear, but it's now. This is current history. God sets things right. He always makes it possible for us to live in his righteousness. I'm sorry, but the message sometimes just puts it nice and clear guess I shouldn't have to apologize. It's just they did a very good job in that passage of scripture. It's very plain. It's very easy for me to understand. When I have doubts, when I question what it is, why is it that God had to do this to to his own son? There it is. The penalty for sin had to be paid. We read it just a second ago. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.22 says, in fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why did blood have to be shed? Well, there's our answer. Hebrews 9.23, it says that that accounts for the, the, the prominence of blood and death in all these secondary practices that point to the realities of heaven. It also accounts for why, when the real thing takes place, these animal sacrifices aren't needed anymore having served their purpose. For Christ didn't enter an earthly version of the holy place. He entered the place itself and offered himself to God as a sacrifice for our sins. He doesn't do this every year as the high priest did under the old law or the old plan with blood with the, which wasn't their own. If that had been the case, he would have to sacrifice himself repeatedly throughout the course of history. But instead, he sacrificed himself once for all. 
summing up all the other sacrifices in this sacrifice of himself, the final solution of sin. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? That works, that, I, I get that, I can wrap my mind around that. He took our sin and punishment. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. So that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds we are healed. Peter quotes Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and verse 5. It says, But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Those are just some of them. If you've got questions about the death of Christ, where should you look? In the scripture. There's lots of information there. There's lots of, uh, of things there that, that will help you fully understand it. So what is our reality? Where are we right now? What's the point? Why do we talk about it? What's the, what is all this stuff leading up to Easter all about? Why is it that we talk about it? What does it mean to me? How does it affect my life? How does it affect the way I live my life? Christ's death brings reconciliation. I know it's a big word, but look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. It's a bringing back. That's what it is. It's reconciliation. It's bringing back. Okay? And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. It's our job now to help others also be reconciled to God. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Church, we have good news. We have good news. The world is living in sin and guilt. And they're struggling with this sin and guilt. And their, their minds are, are just completely falling apart. Their lives are completely falling apart. Why? Because they haven't heard this message of reconciliation. We don't have to live with all that sin and guilt. We can give it back to God. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That's our reality. You know what else? We can have hope of heaven because of this one sacrifice. Sometimes I, I hear people say, and I, I even feel it at times, well, I, I will never be, be worthy of this sacrifice. Christ did that, but you know what? I'm just not, I'm just not worthy. I'm too sinful. I'm too wretched. I'm too horrible to be worthy of such a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It says, with one sacrifice, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus dying on the cross, 
and you accepting the fact that he died for your salvation, for your forgiveness of sins, so that you can be forgiven, allows you to experience this perfection that God in Christ can now see in you. Work isn't done there, but you know what? We can take confidence in this fact. And know that because you've accepted this sacrifice, He has made you perfect forever. But also know that you have some work to do. We can't just sit back and relax and say, oh, well, God's got this. He does, but we need to continue working. God's going to continue working on us. He's going to continue tweaking us and making us into the holy person that He wants us to be. What's our reality? burden is lifted most problems in the world today are related to how guilt is handled Jesus Christ tells us how to handle this guilt he says let his sacrifice be sufficient Hebrews 9 verse 11 starting in verse 11 it says so Christ has now become the high priest over all good things that have, that have to come that have come he has entered the, that greater more perfect tabernacle in heaven which was not made by human hands it is not part of, of this created world With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of of a heifer would cleanse persons' bodies from from being ceremonially, ceremonially impure. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Burden lifted. Our reality is, now we have a task to to get accomplished. There's some serving that we need to get accomplished. There's some, and let me just go there. We need to follow the sandal tracks. Follow the sandal tracks. Matthew 16 and verse 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must what? Deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Have you seen the guy who literally carries a big huge cross around northern Colorado? I don't know his name. The last time I saw him, he was on the frontage road at the Mead overpass there between Mead and Bertha there's an overpass there that where you can't get on the freeway but he was standing out there when I came by the other day I don't think that's what God means obviously this man that does that has a point to make what does it look like for us to carry our own cross we need to give ourselves in service of him Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Because of all He's done for you, let them be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind that He would find acceptable. This is the way to true worship. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let your mind, let God transform your mind into a, let it become a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Appreciate. Love. Relish in the fact 
and in the facts of the cross. This sacrifice that was made was made on our behalf so that we can have the freedom to live and the freedom to be called one of God's own. Don't take it for granted. Love it. Appreciate it. Relish it. Hold on to it. Crave it. Enjoy it. Christ died on the cross for us. And it's a beautiful thing. It means a great deal to us. Next we have some, some art presentations. And uh, so I'm going to turn it over to Adam. And he's going to introduce the, the, the each one. We're going to take a few minutes doing that. And, um, and so we'll go, we'll go with that next. All right, Adam.